I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. Hello Spring, roll on summer with Garden Man. The outdoor furniture superstore is now online with loads in stock from sofa sets to daybeds to sun loungers and plenty more that can be delivered for free this summer when you visit gardenman.co.uk slash podcast. Hello and welcome to Gardening with the RHS with me, Fiona Davison. It can be hard to stay motivated in the garden sometimes, especially when the weather isn't playing along, something we've all been familiar with in this very strange spring. So I thought we could all do with some inspiration in this week's show. We've ideas from all sorts of people, including edible gardening experts like Mark Diacono. The more you garden in harmony with what nature wants to do, the less you are fighting at it, the less you are throwing energy at it. And also coming up, we'll be hearing about amazing landscape designers who lived many years ago. In garden history, people regurgitate the same names all the time. And I just think that there are people that are worth talking about. And I think Nora Lindsay is perfect. So get that notepad ready, lots to get excited about. Hello, I'm Mark Diacono and I am interested and fascinated by all things edible. If you can grow them, all the better. So I'm really a plot-to-plate person who just wants the best flavour that you can get out of the garden uh, into the kitchen. I grow all the best of the familiars and a whole world of unusual things that maybe most people don't. Mark is an award-winning food writer and grower who created Otter Farm and Nursery in East Devon. As he mentioned, he doesn't limit himself to just growing potatoes and courgettes. Otter Farm offers everything from Japanese plums and chocolate vines to Asian pears and ginger rosemary. While you might think these exotic-sounding crops would have a high carbon footprint, Mark is passionate about ensuring his adventurous garden is also a sustainable space. The farm and the nursery have sustainability really underpinning them. You know, the main idea there is, you know, if we can grow things here that we normally import, then maybe that's a little window in for other producers to think about growing some of this stuff commercially. So that's the number one. We do everything organically. There are no pesticides. There are no herbicides. Everything is peat-free. We are entirely dedicated to all of that stuff, which I think is really kind of minimum now. You know, we, we know what we're dealing with, we know the big issues, and if we want to pretend that we don't want to do anything about them, then we're just passing that buck on to the next generation. So that's really what it's all about, capturing rainwater, you know, being carbon neutral, 
low plastic, all of those things are really at the heart of what the nursery does and what I think we should be doing as gardeners on any scale. If you're looking to make your garden sustainable, there are a number of things that I would say are really crucial. And also, not only are they easy, they make the garden more beautiful. They make the garden a nicer place to be. First of all, I would say, the more you garden in harmony with what nature wants to do, the less you are fighting at, at it, the less you are throwing energy at it, be it in a chemical form or in your own labor. So bare soil is really the enemy of gardeners. Soil wants to cover itself. It wants to recover, as it were. It will throw all kinds of weeds at you. It will make a, a playground for anything that wants to blow in. So usually I like to have the soil completely covered, whether that's by dense sowing and planting or whether I'm growing lots of things underneath the plants that are there for the food. I think that's a big number one. It protects the soil. It builds soil, which again is our main job. Pollinators attract them in because not only are they doing pollinating, we're helping to sustain an ecosystem, a system larger than ourselves, which is really important. And being a part of that is really something that I think we need to embrace, see ourselves as part of a wider thing. Not only that, we'll be helping to keep an ecological balance. So again, there is less need for bringing in interventions against pests because the balance will be more likely to be kept by the, by the nature of your garden. The two things that I, I think are really important that sound a little bit kind of less so, but I think they really contribute, are to make somewhere beautiful and make somewhere that you want to go. Because if it's somewhere you want to go, if it's an allotment over the other side of town, if it's part of your garden outside, if it's your whole garden, if you want to be there to do other things like relax, read, enjoy yourself, take it easy, you're very much more woven into the place. And that's really important. You know, if it's not just a place of production, but you are there to notice when those butterflies come in. When things are happening, you become very much more part of that place. And I think that's really important. Yes, do all the water capture stuff, all the rainwater capture. Any of that you can do is brilliant. But I think you'll be more inclined to do that the more you become part of your space. I can't over-exaggerate how important it is that our gardens are as sustainable as we can make them. They are the patchwork of gardens across our country is so much larger than our national parks and our protected areas. This is the patchwork of wildlife value that we have. Everything we can do to make that full of wildlife across the whole range of the ecosystem that it would naturally support is not only doing our garden good, but we are contributing to the wider whole. And in the face of things like climate change, and all of the things it implies, it can seem really difficult to do anything. It seems to need international agreement and so on. But if we all look after our little patch and are as sustainable as we can be in what we bring into it, in what we host, in what we encourage to be there, then we're getting so much more of it out of our garden for the wider world, for the rest of the country, for our community. And I think it's such an important thing to do. I couldn't agree more. Thank you, Mark. So we all know we've been gardening through some pretty extraordinary times recently. And it occurred to us at the RHS Lindley Library that it's not the first time that that's happened. In our collections, we've got evidence of other times that gardeners have had to garden through adversity. Obviously, there's the World War II Dig for Victory campaign. But one of the most inspiring collections we've got is the Rulabe and Horticultural Society. 
And this was a World War I story where gardeners who were interned in Germany during the war gardened throughout the war in their prison camps supported by the RHS who sent seeds and advice. And that's such an amazing piece of evidence that that got us thinking. How can we gather information about today's gardening through a crisis for future historians and generations to learn from? And so we reached out with RHS Communities team to some of the groups that they've been working with, amazing local community groups who gardened right throughout lockdown and kept growing together even while we were socially distancing. And that turned into an exhibition online called Lockdown Gardening. Putting the exhibition together, some of the highlights for me were hearing firsthand from the community gardeners themselves speaking really powerfully about how much doing gardening for others really helped them have a sense of purpose and keep a sense of focus throughout really difficult times. One of my favourites was the excellently named The Cheesy Waffles Project in Durham and they've said our members have also been keen to help others and have made gifts for neighbours, friends and family, thanked essential workers and sent thinking of you messages to older people within the community and they made little potted up little plants and things to give out and that's just one example of the way that plants and gardening can cheer people up. To get to see it, all you need to do is put RHS Digital Collections in your search engine of choice and it should pop up. Or look on the RHS Libraries pages on the RHS website and follow the links. And you'll be able to hear more about community gardening in our next episode as we celebrate the opening of the 5th RHS Garden near Salford. Also next week, we're hearing from roving reporter Chris Young as he spoke to RHS Director-General Sue Biggs on the opening day. Let's hear a preview. It's just so joyous and joyful. Everybody coming here, watch them coming in through the entrance. Everybody's got a big smile on their face. And then when I was talking to some members in the garden just now, they just can't believe it. They're so glad that we came to the Northwest. Mm. And I'm so glad we came to the Northwest too. Mm. What a journey. How long has it taken the RHS to get to this point? Give us a bit of the background. Well, it was January 2015. Jim Gardner, our Director of Horticulture then, and I stood on, above the terraces and looked down at this 154 acres of brambles and overgrown rhododendrons and, and just thought, this is it. Because even though it was raining and you couldn't really see much, there is a magic about this place. And once we then met the people of Salford, there was no turning back. But then, of course, you know, it's taken us literally from then six years to get to where we are today. We'll hear more from Chris and Sue next week, as well as staff and local volunteers on site. It's been a real community effort to transform the 156 acres into a spectacular green haven. And this takes me on to the next part of our series on how to grow delicious food. Let's join Lee Hunt for more. This week we've got watering and tricks and tips that we can all use to make the most of our time watering and the water itself. So first of all, of course, we can all potentially collect rainwater. It's free out of the sky, unlike many of us who are on a water meter and have to pay for everything that we get. So anything that we can collect is not only reducing the strain on our water supplies, it's also free. We did some rough calculations a few years ago, and we reckon an average shed roof at about six by eight could fill some large 
water butts and potentially six large water butts in one winter. So the capacity to collect it is very straightforward. It's having room for the water butts that's often the issue. But the more you can fit in, the more that you've got for the summer months. Obviously now, we're not going to get so much rain in summer. So you might want to start with one or two if you can fit those in. And any summer storms, they'll be topped up. Then try and get some more in in the winter if you can. And that will store the winter rains, which is going to give you even more. At this time of year, most of our watering will often be for planting out vegetable plants. And there's ways to actually ensure that the water does go down to the roots where those plants are actually going to take the water up from in the soil. Often, if you've got a sandy soil, if you water the surface, it will run over the top and run all over the place rather than down amongst the roots. So often what the simplest thing to do is to dig a hole, plant your plant in, and make sure that it's in a slight dish. So literally just a slight raised edge around the outside, like a ring of soil, for example. And then when you fill up the water, often with your watering can, that will give a little dish of water that then allows that little reservoir on top that's held back by the ring of soil to soak in around the plant. It's known as puddling. All it means is the water's held in that area and will then sink down in a column into those roots. That means you'll stand a good chance of really wetting the soil, which is really important because what we do want to do is wet the top roughly six inches around the roots and then that will ensure that there's a good moisture supply for many days around that plant. For sowing seed, often you'll see that they get a fine rose to give a, a nice fine spray of water on the end of a watering can. And after the seed is sown, they'll scatter the water up and down. If you've got fine soils again, the water will still often move sideways rather than down. So we find instead that the best way to get the water around those seeds is to take out a drill. So just a little shallow channel with something like a hoe or by pressing a cane into the soil and wiggling it until you get a channel and then water along the bottom of the drill because of the drill itself will hold the water in place it'll allow it to soak in and if you do that a couple of times even in quite dry weather it'll moisten the soil at the bottom of the drill sow your seed into that pull the soil back over the seeds you can water it again on the top if you wish but the important thing is that there's quite a bit of moisture then locked in while the seed germinates. So it should mean that there's a more consistent supply of moisture and a better rate of germination. With watering, watering well less is going to be better because it'll go down and wet those roots. So we try and avoid little and often. There are some critical times to be aware of a watering particularly in the fruit and vegetable gardens. So with things like leafy plants, they will need a constant supply of moisture to crop well. So things like lettuces, for example. But with a lot of other things, it's the two weeks before they begin to crop. So if you think about things like beans producing pods or raspberries producing raspberries, it's those two weeks as they start to mature that's the critical time to get the water to them. So don't think you necessarily have to water everything all the time. There are those key moments that are going to make most difference to the quality of those crops. So in summary with watering, 
collect all the rainwater you can and use that rather than tap water. Consider how you can really get the water to the plants that really need it. So watering well, but watering less, puddling plants in and watering the bottom of seed drills rather than just on the top and it's all drifting away. And for crops, water in the two weeks before you harvest because that will make better use of water and increase the quality of their crop. Great tips as always from Lee. For our last bit of inspiration, we're going back in time over 100 years to meet Nora Lindsay as part of our Hidden Horticulturist series. Nora was a landscape architect who became a major influence on garden design and planting in the UK. Garden historian Advolly Richmond is here to tell us all about her life and legacy. Nora was born in 1873 in colonial India and they returned to Britain when she was, I think, about two years old. Her family were extremely well connected and she bounced around from country house weekend parties from one to another. And this social circle, they were the catalyst and foundation for her later garden designing career. She is one of those people that was a natural gardener because when she got married at the age of 22 in 1895, they were given the manor house at Sutton Courtney. And there she created the most amazing garden from scratch. She had no formal training. So everything she did was instinctive. She just knew what worked with what. And typically her garden was full of roses, delphiniums, you know, lilies, a typical wild cottage garden style. And all of this was instinctive. Her marriage wasn't great. Around 1920-ish, things began to sort of go a bit right and the marriage fell into difficulties. And so once it was obvious that her marriage was not going to survive, she realised that she needed to find an income. And because she had been advising various friends about their gardens, one particular friend said, you know, you can actually charge for this. You should charge for what you're doing. And that was the beginning of her career. Today, one of the main gardens that most people associate with Nora is at Blickling Hall. And she substituted the more formal part of the garden, the planting, with these gorgeous herbaceous borders to create a softer look, which incidentally required less maintenance because we're talking now about the interwar period. And so you no longer have those armies of gardeners that were lost during the First World War. And so quite a lot of the more formal aspects of some of these gardens just needed to be sort of requiring less maintenance. And so this is what she did at Blickling. 
what she loved. And I think one of her trademarks was these deep herbaceous borders. And so she created some of these at Chirk Castle. She created these wonderful topiary disc and a cone on top, which she called her Welsh hats. And if you look at any of the gardens that she has been known to be connected with, these Welsh hats are sort of a bit of a trademark. So at Hidcote, she was very, very close to Major Lawrence Johnson, or Johnny, as she called him. And she was very, very involved in the creation of Hidcote. In fact, Lawrence Johnson wanted to leave Hidcote to her, but sadly she died before she could sort of take it over, before he sort of went off to the south of France. And so sadly, her name has been erased to a great extent from Hidcote, which is one of this country's most iconic gardens. I've been intrigued by her for quite a few years, and I just find her fascinating. I find her endearing. I mean, she loved magnolias. I love magnolias. Roses. I love roses. You can never have too many roses. And she just had hundreds of these roses scrambling all over the place. And I love that. I love that. That's the kind of thing that I do in my own garden when I've been doing my garden history courses, now that I know a lot more about her, I have been trying to sort of present her as somebody who actually deserves a place at the table with sort of Gertrude Jekyll, Harold Pito, Thomas Mawson and Rosemary Vera, these people that are often talked about. And I think Nora deserves a place, certainly, on the table. Nora's story is just as relevant as all those other people. In garden history, people regurgitate the same names all the time. And I just think that there are people that are worth talking about. And I think Nora Lindsay is perfect. She really needs to be better known. And I do believe that there are probably an awful lot of elements of Nora Lindsay's gardening style and design still left in a lot of gardens because she worked for over a hundred clients and she was a huge influence and a lot of people that created the late 19th century and early 20th century gardens. At Volley Richmond, And on that note, we've made it to the end of this week's show. If you'd like to know more on anything we've talked about today, then visit rhs.org.uk forward slash podcast. Until next time, it's goodbye from me, Fiona Davison. I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. 
It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. Discover the beauty of an RHS membership all year round. Save 25% off an RHS membership today when paying by direct debit. Prices start at just £55.50. With a membership, you'll gain access to an array of special events at our gardens all year round. Be the first to know about RHS flower shows and get exclusive member-only days plus reduced rate tickets. And you'll have the chance to enhance your gardening know-how with access to free expert garden advice, monthly editions of The Garden magazine, and so much more. Terms and conditions apply.